I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's Sponsor Insight is David Abrams, the founding partner of Velocity Capital Management. Velocity is a newly formed firm that focuses on investing with founders to build best-in-class sports, media, and entertainment companies. Our conversation covers David's background, long experience in distressed investing on Wall Street and at Apollo, and personal investments in sports-related businesses that led to serving as Chief Investment Officer of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. We then turn to the formation of Velocity, the firm's focus, deal sourcing, diligence process, value-added ownership, and example of its investment in the X Games. Please enjoy my conversation with David Abrams. David, great to see you. Ted, good morning. Why don't you take me back to your early days getting into the financial world? Wow. Late 80s. Pretty much a different world. When I talk to people about that, I say, oh, did you ever see Wall Street? They're like, Wolf of Wall Street. I'm like, no, Wall Street. It's got nothing to do with the Wolf of Wall Street. But you know, when I started the industry, there really was no alternatives industry per se. My career began as the savings and loan crisis hit, Drexel went out of business, and there had been a lot of buyouts done and leveraged deals, but they really weren't private equity funds. I saw the formation of capital in the alternative space really taking advantage of a lot of the problems that had emanated from the junk bond crisis. And a firm I eventually went to work for Apollo came out of Drexel, and their business was buying up the assets that they had been the investment bank for that actually raised the money and issued all the junk bonds. And you can go through a long list of firms that were really founded out of the financial crisis. Many of them came out of Drexel and took advantage of an opportunity. And then once that happened, people started realizing as the markets recovered, we can do the same thing with fresh pools of capital to buy assets and lever them up. And that really became when private equity started to boom. What was your path watching this along the way? I was very early. I was on the sidelines when the world blew up in 89, 90. I remember being around the first time I saw somebody lose their job. I was at Bear Stearns. And it's a really unsettling thing for a 23-year-old to see a vice president that you're working with not be around anymore. And that was my first taste of how it really works, quote unquote, in the real world. But as our business slowed down, I had started seeing what was going on in kind of a new industry, which was the financial restructuring world. And I actually went to go work for a boutique, which is a spinoff of Drexel. And some firms like Apollo became principal investors. And the firm I went to called the Argosy Group 
was a financial advisor restructuring firm. This is before Hulan or J. Alex even existed. So we did financial restructurings of all these highly levered deals that came out of the junk bond boom. And that went on for several years. And then I migrated into distressed sales and trading. And that became my next career path, having had the valuation and restructuring experience and then started getting involved in principal investing and trading. So a lot of people, when they think about their careers early on, seek brands. What was it that had you go to Argosy from Bear Stearns? Well, it's interesting. I actually worked for Drexel when I was in college. I spent a year working on the floor of the Commodities Exchange in New York. So think of trading places. That's where I worked. It was really an unbelievable experience. I was a runner working for Drexel. And then when Drexel went out of business, I was connected with some of the people that set up new firms that came out of it. And I thought it was a good extension of investment banking experience to go into the restructuring world. And that led to the career path. But the firm, the Argosy Group, was definitely not a brand name. It was a small firm. There were seven of us when I started. And ultimately, that business, many years later, was purchased by uh, CIBC. So then you get over to more bulge bracket CSDLJ back in the day. What was impactful about you, about your time there? I'm going to give you a really quick anecdote. I actually had accepted a job to go back to Bear Stearns to lead their distressed efforts. This is 1996. My oldest son, my first son was born leap year day, 1996, so February 29th. And I had accepted a job to go to Bear Stearns in the distress group. And it actually had a guarantee on it. And for someone that was becoming a first-time parent, I was like, wow, this is great. A little bit of stability in my life. There's a gentleman who was running the business at DLJ named Doug Ostrover. And Doug had called me up the day my son was born. And he said, before you formally accept the job, come down to DLJ, which at that time was all the way down on Broadway near Wall Street. So I took the subway down. I think it was the evening my son was born when all our parents were in the hospital. I needed a break anyway. Came back to the hospital and said to Nicole that I changed my mind. I'm going to DLJ. I don't remember the conversation, but I don't think it went over too well. <laughs> I went to DLJ with nothing more than, we got a great business. Here's the phone. Here's how we're going to do it. Let's go build it. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. And we built an unbelievable business at DLJ, which ultimately was then absorbed into Credit Suisse, which is an even bigger, better business. And that really led to all the future things I did in my career. What caused you to change your mind? Doug's pretty persuasive. I think it was the opportunity to be more of an entrepreneur. Bear Stearns had a really elite distress group. They had come out of the financial crisis. They were already actively in distress. And DLJ was really a leader in high-yield bond underwriting. But they didn't have a business that took advantage of distressed assets in the market. It just seemed like the guys that were there, I knew we had a lot of pieces and we could come in and we could just build something really special. And when I look back on it, I feel as if in that period, it was kind of getting into the 90s. It felt like I was playing on the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls. We always use the analogy. I was very happy to be John Paxson or Steve Kerr or Luke Longley. We had a bunch of people that were Michael Jordans. And we just had a great business and it was a lot of fun. 
I have lifelong friends from there. Most of them have gone off and done really great things. But that had set the stage for the future growth of my career. I saw this opportunity emerging in Europe as the European banks were forced to delever as part of the formation of the European Union. And it was a market that didn't have transparency. It didn't have liquidity versus the traditional markets I had been involved with where the SEC was instituting more liquidity and transparency through a trading system called Trace. So I made a decision that the business I had been involved with in the growth trajectory was not in my favor and that I needed to figure out what the next stage of my career was. And I literally decided I was going to go build a European distress business while sitting in my seat at 25th and Park at Credit Suisse. It wasn't really a formal plan, but I started investigating it by traveling over to Europe a couple of days a month and then realized with Germany being Europe's biggest economy, that was the market that I was going to plant my flag in. I don't speak a lick of German, tried to learn it. It was not easy. So I started commuting to Germany. And one day I walked onto the trading floor at Credit Suisse, 11 Madison Avenue, and I had five people following me. And they were all from the distress group of a bank called Commerce Bank. So this is 2004. And I walked into Bennett Goodman's office and Doug Ostrover came in and I introduced them. Two of them barely spoke English. And I basically said, this is the team I'd like to hire to build out our German distress business. The messaging was, if you really want to do this and your wife, Nicole, is okay with it, that's fine. So all of a sudden, we're in the German distress business. And my trips to Europe became not just a couple of days a week, it became a very big challenge going back and forth with three kids under the age of five, building these relationships in Germany and trying to understand how you can find ways to take advantage of what was happening across the German banking system. It was an unbelievable learning experience, but I also realized that if I can do this, there's not a lot of things I can't do. And it takes a lot of work, but we put a really good business together. And ultimately, I moved to London in 2005 with my family because it was just too hard commuting. There have been a lot of iterations at times of the thought that banks in Europe would be selling assets. What were the components of what made that opportunity work? Well, it was really simple. It started with regulatory changes. Germany had state guarantees, which meant they were AAA rated no matter what their balance sheet looked like. And when the EU was formed, the concept, which still exists today, of a level playing field. So governments just can't subsidize an industry in their country because it's unfair to the other industries in other countries. So when those federal guarantees went away, it was a little bit of the, well, Germany has these problems. Everybody else has them too. But this was the first wave of what you'll call the, wasn't even called the sovereign debt crisis then. It was just deleveraging. So this was the early 2000s. And those trends continued and you saw some other green shoots. And then obviously what happened, the financial crisis was just the next wave. And because banks are regulated, it was easy to see the amount of distressed and non-performing loans they had in their balance sheets. And there was a shift in 
this part of the distress market originally had started in Asia in the late 90s when you had financial crisis in Southeastern Asian countries, and then it moved up to bigger economies like Japan and Korea. And most of those markets were dominated by US investment banks that were using proprietary capital to buy assets off the financial institutions' balance sheets. And they built really big businesses. And then that trend started happening in Europe. A lot of the advisory teams and some of the investment principles moved from Asia to Europe. At Credit Suisse, we just had a competitive advantage in Europe, Germany specifically. And so I said, let's focus on that market where we had an advantage versus other markets. With that structural advantage at the time of Credit Suisse, what are the benefits and the drawbacks of building a new business inside a large financial institution? The benefits are if you can find a way to leverage all the different parts of the organization, you can build a business where you really have a lot of other people that are helping you build it. And that's one of the keys to starting a business, right? You just can't hire 50 people to do everything. So we were leveraging off the private bank. We were leveraging off of the investment bankers to make introductions for us. So that was definitely one of the advantages, leveraging the infrastructure. The disadvantages of being inside at least an investment bank were, for us, capital. When you're looking at making investments in distressed assets, banks are only trying to get rid of assets off their balance sheets that are illiquid and problematic, that don't require 100% capital reserves. So that was ultimately one of the issues that became a seminal moment for me was, how can we keep building a principal business at Credit Suisse when fundamentally they don't want to own these assets? And a year later, I took my entire business to Apollo, which was transformational, but I was in the right place at the right time. Apollo at that point was basically a US private equity firm. It had just opened an office in London. They were trying to expand. And when I started talking to Apollo, it was pretty clear that building this business inside an alternative investment firm, which is used to understanding making long-term investments in private equity and how to acquire that kind of capital, it made a lot more sense. And over time, less and less of the banks today have smaller prop and principal businesses. This was a long time ago, before at least the financial crisis and a lot of the regulation. So some of the big banks were run like hedge funds. I mean, look, we saw what happened. Lehman went out of business. Bear went out of business. That was what I'll call pre-financial crisis. Post-financial crisis, you can't do this anymore. That's why these businesses don't exist inside banks. So that was really the biggest issue for us. So when you moved it to Apollo, you had that principal mentality, that ability to commit capital. But at the time, as you said, you wouldn't have had the broad infrastructure of a global business like Credit Suisse. How did you fill in the aspects of what you had doing it inside of a bank when you went to this nascent business at Apollo? It's a great question. At that point, most of the big firms didn't really have giant infrastructure in Europe. Apollo had bought a company called Countrywide, which in the UK was the biggest effectively broker for residential housing transactions. When the financial crisis hit specifically, we bought a lot of assets from Bear Stearns, which had this giant residential mortgage business in the UK called Rooftop. So we realized that while we're buying these distressed assets secured by residential real estate, we also owned a company that was the biggest brokerage firm in the UK residential real estate market. 
and they could help us understand the underlying value of the real estate. Nobody else could compete with us. And we became the dominant owner of distressed residential mortgages in the UK by leveraging countrywide's expertise to make sure we really understand what the true value of the collateral was. So that was kind of a big example. And we had an effort that started focusing on financial institutions, which other firms did, but we were talking to financial institutions about their problems. And we developed a strategy that we like to say, we're from Apollo, we're here to help. Meaning when you're talking to a bank in Spain or a bank in Ireland, and they have an array of problems in their balance sheet, we were presenting holistic solutions. If you have this business, you want to sell it, we have a private equity group. If you're looking financing, we have a credit group for some of your companies you want to get refinanced. We had built a life settlements business, buying insurance policies. And then we had my business, which was buying a whole different range of loans and operating companies. So we presented these holistic solutions. So it didn't necessarily have to be my fund deploying capital. It could be across the firm deploying capital. And that led to a lot of times of us being able to carve out incredibly attractive opportunities. So the ability to always present a holistic solution to a problem has been a theme that I have kind of taken with me as I've moved forward and really used today because you never really want to compete on price. Trying to figure out a way where you can buy it at a lower price because you're providing some other value or solution to a seller is how you make better returns. So there's so many steps in between where you've been in this distressed business to what you're doing today. What was the impetus for the next step in your career after Apollo? It was a very organic process. I think there were three moments that just happened that I never really anticipated. So when you live abroad, at least my kids all went to American school in London and they play in various sports tournaments with other schools across Europe. And my oldest son was playing in a basketball tournament in Brussels in 2014. And after the game, his coach was sitting with an individual who had an iPad. The iPad had all the clips from the game, all the shots he made, all the shots he missed, and a whole bunch of other statistics. And I was kind of struck by it because first I was like, wow, that's really good for him to understand. And then after talking to the individual, I asked some questions about the company. And it was a company where it had been founded at this engineering school outside Brussels. And they were trying to commercialize it. And they had sold the product to some of the French basketball leagues and the Belgian basketball leagues. And they were trying to expand the commercialization of it. And I said, well, you know, I could certainly help you in a bunch of different ways. I'd love to learn more about it. So I went a couple times to meet the university and meet the individual engineers who started the company. And when I went, there's a scene in, I forgot which Steve Jobs movie it is, but he's assembling computers in his garage. And he's got a welder and he's got all this inventory. And I think his parents are like, you got to get out of here. And that was the scene at this company called Keymotion. And they would assemble this equipment. And basically it was an automated cameraman. So think of sticking a camera in a gym and it would film the content on the court autonomously. So it got rid of the use for human intervention. So they had these big bulky cameras that they were putting together. And then for some reason they had a Fiat and they would load this stuff in a Fiat and from Brussels, they would drive across Europe and they would install this stuff in gyms. 
I was just amazed by because they actually produced something versus a lot of the stuff I'd done, which didn't produce anything. So after a bunch of diligence, I got together some of my friends from the US who had been involved in owning basketball teams and worked across youth sports. And we thought we could really help this company commercialize their product in a lot of ways. So I led an investment group and we bought the business end of 2014, early 2015. And I set out to become the chairman and wound up running the company and was its biggest investor. And if my wife listens to this, she was very concerned the amount of personal investment we made in the company because I was really committed to it. Over a period of time, we made some acquisitions. We brought in some outside capital. It was an incredible learning experience, and we had a very successful exit in 2021 to the largest publicly traded sports data technology company called Sport Radar. But that really got me excited about there is an investable industry developing around professional sports and the value of kind of intellectual property. So that was a really hands-on experience. And then in 2014, I was sitting around with one of my closest friends talking about sports, actually watching the World Cup in London in the summer. And the idea came up about some minor league baseball teams in the US. And one of them was the Yankees AAA team in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And the group of us wound up buying the Yankees AAA team and kind of fulfilled a lifelong dream for me. I spent a lot of time commuting from London to Scranton, Wilkes-Barre. It's not an easy way to get there, especially when you throw Brussels in the middle of that. But it was an incredible learning experience about how to build and manage a professional sports franchise, but also focusing on ways to commercialize the business. That was really the big focus for me and all the companies that touch a professional sports team on the sports performance side, on the ticketing side, sponsorship, media rights. We had radio deals, local TV partnerships. It was a lot of work, but I enjoyed every minute of it. What was different going from the investment seat in these distressed assets to owner-operator in both Keymotion and with this Yankees affiliate? Some of the same premises I had flowed through, which was we need to follow best practices. Organization information was always key, and sometimes the smaller companies don't have that. That was part of it. Hiring, attracting, retaining quality people, we always had that across our investment businesses. So you need to recalibrate the types of people you need to hire for these businesses. And sometimes I had to learn what skill set they needed to have for their specific role because there was different roles than a principal investment business. When I was part of a group that bought Crystal Palace Football Club in the UK, I had this experience because my son went through the UK academy football system. He plays professionally now in the US. And so I really understood the importance of the grassroots building of the youth academy, how that can feed players for the team. And so that was where I spent my time trying to help as we thought through that and build our academy and change the trajectory of the business. But that was the same mentality of this is a process, right? It's not going to happen overnight. We've got to hire the right people. We have to plan for it and put it in place. And sometimes that's hard. It takes time. It takes money. But saw that in Keymotion. Took a long time and a lot of money. We ultimately sold the Yankees AAA team at the end of 
2021, and Crystal Palace, we still own. The pencil sharpening that you think of as a distressed investor buying NPLs, the sourcing, the negotiating, seems quite different from working on a tech startup effectively in key motion, and then a very different kind of asset in these sports teams. Where did you have to develop either different mental frameworks or skill sets making those transitions? Sometimes you can say, well, I've been running a hedge fund for my entire life, or I've been doing this for my entire life. And that's fine. You develop a great set of skills. You keep doing it over and over again. I feel that I've developed a unique set of skills from all the different things that I've done, but they are very complementary in many ways. The institutionalization of what I'll call assets that intersect with intellectual property and then that have changed with technology, these industries didn't exist eight to 10 years ago. These companies, industries weren't big enough to really warrant anyone's attention. That's changed over the past eight to 10 years and even accelerated dramatically in the past three to five. It doesn't really matter what the underlying asset is. The fundamental analysis and way of thinking about it is always the same. Running a distressed business at Credit Suisse and then at Apollo and then being an owner-operator in these businesses, it provides for us a lens that I feel pretty comfortable looking through right now. How did you decide after these individual investments you made to sort of bring that into a professional role? Well, it was the spring of 2018 and my youngest was graduating from high school in London. And after almost 15 years there, it was just time to go back to the US with all my kids here. And I wasn't exactly sure what the next path would be, but I knew that I had developed this knowledge base across entertainment and media and sports and through Keymotion specifically, a lot of understanding about how technology and the innovation was driving disruption and how could you capitalize on that. And it was still a little bit early in other people kind of realizing this. And so I thought a great way to approach it would be to work with people that I've known for a long time and had already invested with in the space. So obviously through my time at Apollo and at Penn, Josh Harris is someone I'm close with. And Josh had gotten together with David Blitzer and formed Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, HBSE. And it was effectively a holding company that owned a handful of assets, some of which I had been invested in. We had the 76ers, New Jersey Devils, Prudential Center. There was an esports team there. There was Crystal Palace Football Club. And the world was in a very big growth phase, especially across this ecosystem. And the thesis was we've got this fantastic operating platform that sees a tremendous amount of deal flow, but how do we harness all that? I had a lot of really good experience and comfort with harnessing resources across an organization to both source and provide solutions to make investments. And we just decided to give it a shot. So we had this investment platform that I was overseeing that was looking across a handful of verticals, everything from early stage through venture. And then we had a handful of growth stage investments that we were spending a lot of time helping grow and a handful of live entertainment, real estate investments. And we were using internal capital, raising third-party capital, 
and the business was growing. We made over 25 investments in a couple of years, and then COVID hit. It became a little challenging for everyone who owned intellectual property that relied on live events to generate revenues. So capital allocation became a little bit challenging internally. And without dedicated capital for the investment verticals and themes that we were trying to pursue, it didn't really fit anymore for me. And given my relationship with Josh and David, I mean, we're friends. David is my lifelong friend and my fraternity brother. And Josh, I obviously have known for a very long time as well. We all lived in London together for various times. And so it was kind of a natural extension to try and figure out what the next thing was. I definitely recognize this broader industry that I've been spending time on. There was a really interesting opportunity here. So what's the best way to take advantage of it? And my co-founding partner, Arnie Reese and I, we started talking about, well, what would that look like? He had just helped take Sport Radar public in 2021, and he needed to transition all of his gaming licenses, which if anyone's been through a regulatory process with gaming license, it takes a bit of time. So we were trying to figure out, well, when you have an investment firm, you have to start with your first thing. And what should we do? And there was a bunch of discussion about how do we take advantage of how we're different? And the cool thing to do would be to invest in sports teams. For people who like sports, it's fun and a bunch of people are doing it. And I think there's a very interesting play to invest in sports teams. We talked about, well, where is our competitive advantage? What gets us up in the morning? What do we get excited about? And it was really helping companies build and ultimately create successful exits. That's just kind of the mentality from the different things that we've done in our careers. That was how Velocity Capital Management was launched towards the end of 2021. We established our fund and have been building the business since then. Given the breadth of experience you've had, right, everything from distressed to startups, sports, technology, buying assets off of banks, how did you decide what your universe would be for Velocity? You have to describe what you're doing to somebody in a way that they can understand. To say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're also going to do that, that just doesn't work in today's world. Maybe if you're on your fund 11, you get discretion to do lots of different things. But I'd learned from my experience building a business and running it at Apollo that focus is probably the number one priority, especially when you're starting out. And so for me, that was it. Let's define what we're going to do. In order to define it, let's pick where we believe we are differentiated, where we can be successful. Just because someone else is doing it doesn't mean we should do it. And so we felt that businesses that are looking both for capital and for some strategic advice and domain expertise, that would be where we really wanted to focus. Starting up a business, we felt we would focus on mostly non-control investments to begin with. Just from a size of team and a capital perspective, it seemed like it made more sense. And we decided definitively we were not going to be investing in sports teams. But some of the underlying 
foundational themes that people look at for sports teams cuts through everything that we do. The value of intellectual property, technology driving innovation and disruption, new companies being established, funded, being successful, and then needing a strategic partner to grow. So all these themes resonated with us. And then we really just said, all right, well, let's narrow down the industries we're focused on. You can get yourself caught up in a lot of things. And kind of a little bit by process of elimination, we said, where do we really have a lot of expertise? Where do we believe that companies are going to want to pick us because we're domain experts? So that's how we focused on content, intellectual property, like we've talked about, the businesses that support the institutionalization of these companies slash teams and leagues, sports betting, given Arnie's expertise at Sport Radar was a key theme for us. As I said, really needed to be focused and have a narrow mandate because one of the biggest challenges of running a fund is spending your time really wisely. And sometimes the best deals that you do are the ones that you don't do. Within those areas of IP, the ecosystem embedding, what types of businesses do you target? Businesses are at these growth inflection points where they are leaders in their market. They've got this proven revenue and monetization model, and that we see that they can be a category leader and sometimes they're the first one in that category. And then what makes them unique? Do they have this defensible moat, which some companies do, some companies don't. Given, I guess, my lens of trying to focus on all the things that can go wrong first, we like to think about how do we protect our capital? We always think about, well, what can we do as operating partners, right? As strategic partners to these companies, what can we do to help them grow on a path so that in a three, four-year period, we see the viability of an exit. Because if we can't help a company construct their business in a way that it's attracted to the next buyer, it doesn't really make sense for us. It's great to invest in a company that grows and is really successful, but we want to understand what the exit is. You spent time in a bunch of different iterations in a new market. When you're doing something in a relatively new area or institutionally new area, how do you actually go about that process of sourcing these opportunities? Sourcing is where everything starts. It's the key because not everyone's going to see every deal. Sometimes you see a deal too late where you really can't have an impact. And so a lot of starting a new firm is building a brand. The entrepreneurial requirements to sourcing are tremendous. I don't think there's any industry where you're really just sitting in your office or in these days at home and expecting everything to fall into your lap. It just doesn't happen that way. We have made a concerted effort to be very proactive with sourcing. And it starts with all the different relationships you've built over the course of your life. You have to start there. And we have the partners I've mentioned are part of that. And we have a lot of other strategic investors who own media companies and teams and our investors in venues who were investors in the fund. As you think about the overall industry, with the capital that's flown in, with technology creating new businesses, great companies have been established. They're successful, they're on a growth trajectory, and now they're looking for more capital and a partner. And 
the best way to find those earlier stage companies is with relationships with the institutional investors who focus on the early adventure stages. And there's actually a fair amount of them across the entertainment and media sports ecosystem with a technology focus. This is no different than any other business I've been in. You define where the deals are going to come from and you go create the relationships with them so that you get good and early calls. You're not going to get every call and you're going to miss deals, but the investors in businesses at earlier stages want us to be their next investor because we're bringing something more than just capital. And there are other people that we will also try and bring in because it's a very collaborative area, the growth stage space, because in control, highest bid wins and there's not that much collaboration. But we want to collaborate with other like-minded investors who also are strategic. It's the best way to win, right? It doesn't just have to be us. As we make investments and build our business, you would expect other opportunities to arise. So we just closed a deal that we led in a company called Video Sites in partnership with the NBA. NBA has a new equity group. Have a great rapport with them now, and they are investing in businesses that we are looking to collaborate on. So like you would expect, as you start to build your business, your sourcing channels expand. How does the diligence process different, if at all, on non-control investments from control investments? It's pretty much the same process we would undergo if we were looking at a control investment, because I only know one way to look at making an investment. And it's with that bottom-up mentality where you're trying to figure out what can go wrong. How do we protect ourselves? And how do we make sure that we're not making a big mistake here? Because that's just how I've been trained over time. We really try to look at these investments through the lens of our diligence process should lever all of our domain expertise and relationships. And we feel as if when we see a business, we can understand pretty quickly who their customers are, who are the operating companies in the space that might compete with them, and then who should we talk to to get our diligence done. In these opportunities, it's not as if you're going to go call someone who's going to give you a big report and say, here's everything about the company, the industry, because some of these instances, they're just emerging. There's not a 20-year operating history in the industry or in the company. It really is the domain expertise and speaking to companies around the ecosystem that makes sense. And I'll give you a perfect example in this company, Video Sites, where they are cutting-edge business tracking content and measuring it and monetizing across social media. And so every rights holder in the world uses somebody to track the value of their media impressions, whether they're doing it in linear, doing it on digital, people doing it on social. But Arnie and I have seen a problem of trying to measure the value of rights across the ever-growing creation of user-generated content in social media. So we recognized right away that there was a big problem that this company was solving, and we know a lot of the other businesses that provide similar services for rights holders, but they do it in a very different way. They don't solve the problem that really exists. And then you speak to the rights holders who are trying to figure out the solution to the problem, and the ones that don't know the company 
when their first response is never seen this, it's differentiated and it solves a problem for me that I've been looking to solve. That's kind of the fundamental diligence you start with. And then obviously it's the underwriting follows what you would do in private equity, right? Trying to understand the customer base, what's the growth trajectory, what capital do we need? And then ultimately, how do we position this for an exit? In video sites, you mentioned that executive search, what are the different ways that you saw going into the investment that you think now as an owner of the business, you can help drive it forward? If we can clearly demonstrate the value add to the rights holder and or brand, we have a really good opportunity to convert them to a client. If we go back to Keymotion for a second, one of the lessons I learned, and it was certainly a mistake that I made, was our go-to-market strategy was pricing our product at a premium level. And in the case of Keymotion, we had by far the best technology and the best product, but we priced ourselves out of a lot of customers' reach. And that was a big mistake. One of those lessons we're applying now is let's make sure that we win the client business and then earn the return on their capital invested to grow the partnership. That's a really important lesson that we're presenting to video sites because it is by far the leading technology and business in the space. And what we're focusing on is helping them hire the right person who recognizes it's not just a sale you make today, it's a long-term relationship with these large rights holders and brands. We'll have to ask you about another company investment recently, the X Games. My partner, Arnie, I'll just give you a quickly how the X Games intersects with him. So he had been at UEFA selling the international rights to the Champions League for a while, got recruited to come to ESPN, moved to the US in 06, and started managing a portfolio of assets across their international and kind of digital brands. And one of them was the X Games. Even at the time, the X Games inside ESPN, which was pretty entrepreneurial when it first got acquired ultimately by Disney, it was not a very big asset. It was not a priority. And so it was underinvested in, lack of real focus on revenue growth. It was just a brand that they had in their portfolio. And every few years, somebody else would come in and be given the X Games as part of a portfolio. So it never really had that consistency of growth. Ultimately, Arnie, when he was working at MSB Sports Capital, they had done a carve out of the McLaren F1 racing team from McLaren Automotive and looked at other carve out opportunities. And then at the time, ESPN slash Disney wasn't ready to sell the X Games. The X Games was always kind of an asset that Arnie was hoping would get carved out of Disney. Great relationship with his former partners at MSP. And so while he was at Sport Radar, those conversations continued. COVID exacerbated the lack of prioritization by ESPN in the X Games. The business deteriorated significantly from where it was. And ultimately, after a lot of stop and start negotiations and a long year-long discussion, it was carved out of Disney and the transaction closed in October. And given Arnie's historical knowledge of it and relationship, 
we invested in it in velocity. As you look at that going forward, what do you think you'll be able to do with the business? Well, I love the word corporate carve out and can put distress in front of it, but I only say distress because I think anybody would define a business that has declined that much as a distressed asset. I think there were three easy examples that I can give you as to why we're excited about the capital and the turnaround. The first one is just programming. The X Games, which really focuses on a much younger demographic, is really created now for linear television, where most of its demographic probably don't even own a television. It's really hard to reach them if they have no way of watching your content. So creating relationships with digital platforms to promote the content digitally, and also internationally, there's no international deal for the X Games. The second area is really what I'll call sponsorship. So for all sports teams and media assets, sponsorship is a big revenue line. Now inside ESPN, given the size of the X Games, the prioritization was on much bigger intellectual property. The NFL, UFC, Major League Baseball. So not a dedicated sales team to monetize the IP through sponsorship. We're having a dedicated sales team. And by the way, there was no dedicated management team either. So hiring a dedicated CEO who's Stephen Flissler, who ran original content at Twitch, gives you a sense for the challenges that the business had before. So now you have a CEO who understands original content because it's really a content play. And the third area is historically, just given the size of it, for the game day events, whether it's the winter games in Aspen or summer games elsewhere, there were no game day revenues. So think of going to a baseball game where all the tickets are free and there's no hospitality and there's no parking revenues and there's no premium. Okay. That's a pretty easy thing to solve. And we just had the first event in the winter games a few weeks ago in Aspen and starting to find ways to create the right pricing system to drive game day events. So we look at it and say, everything that we would want in a premium intellectual property and brand is there. We just have to prioritize it. Well, David, you've built a bunch of businesses before within organizations. And in this particular business in Velocity, what do you have in place and what are you building in place to make the Velocity business work? We're in the process of continuing to build out the team. So I think the two areas that we prioritize first were having the infrastructure to help source and underwrite these deals, given that we really are investing through a private equity lens. So we have two senior associates. And then when you have a fund, infrastructure on the administrative side is critical. You start with the early stages of your first fund. As we grow our assets, we will certainly add more people. In a lot of the new businesses you started, there was this aspect of leveraging outside resources. How are you thinking about that in this business? We have a handful of advisors that are in different stages of having their agreements formalized with us. They range from former industry executives who ran media and digital entertainment businesses to individuals who work inside sports teams to athletes because they help us on the sourcing side. As an example, 
We've worked very closely with John Kozner, one of Arnie's former partners at ESPN, and John ran the kind of digital media business there. John was an early investor in video sites and called us up Q1 2022 and mentioned that he's been involved with this company and he thought that we could really help them and would be worth a conversation to see if it kind of made sense for us in our investment profile. So he was very instrumental in helping us source that opportunity. So you've brought all your history and experience from all aspects of this business to a new fund that just happens to coincide with one of the toughest fundraising environments in a long time. How have you found the process of raising capital for Velocity? Challenging. I don't think anybody would expect me to say something different. You know, it's funny. If we had been doing this two to three years ago, we would have grown exponentially by now. But we also would have had a portfolio of investments that had been made during a period of over-exuberance. So how would that work out long-term? Were we better served investing in this environment, even if it's a little bit less capital, than having invested in the environment the past couple of years with more capital? I did learn a lot from my fundraising experience, which is it's about building trust and relationships. And there are some people that, by definition, won't invest in first-time funds or emerging managers. That's fine. Yeah. On the other hand, I do believe that we are incredibly well-positioned with our differentiation. And then when you add on top of that, the overall repricing in the market and the size of the opportunity, and then really the dearth of capital, it's a very good time to have capital. Our challenge is not sourcing attractive deals. It's not having the chance to invest. It's really just having enough capital to execute. That's a solvable problem. Well, David, I can't let you go without asking a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I only get one. You can have as many as you want. Okay. Because there's a family poll on this one. First of all, I love swimming. I don't know why or how, but when I'm swimming, it's kind of my way to decompress and just completely detach from the world. Ocean swimming, I could swim literally for hours. And having the sun on my back and swimming along, it's a great way to just think. No headphones, no music, just you in the water. Hopefully nothing scary in the water. I've been uh, stung by a jellyfish a couple times. That's been the extent of it. So that's what I call my Zen place. And then the other side of it is I do like to travel around the world and see Bruce Springsteen concerts. That's my other passionate hobby. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? In the current environment that we're in, investments that solve a problem, and even more so, they solve a problem that people didn't realize was a problem. Trying to figure out how does a company solve a problem? And then is this entrepreneur, can that business evolve where they can realize their potential? What's your biggest investment pet peeve? Oh, especially being in New York, people exaggerating how great their funds are and how great their returns are. You only hear about, oh, I did that deal or I did this one. There's a band of returns that are the top and there are a lot of people who will say that they dramatically exceed those returns. And whether it's institutional fund or especially in your personal life, I'm like, really? 
Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? One of them, I think, has been on your show before. And I would say Doug Ostrover. Doug, that story I gave was the one that convinced me to go to DLJ way back when, when my first son was born and helped me along my path in many ways. And I do recall when Bennett Goodman and Doug Ostrover and Trip Smith set up GSO, I did have the chance to go work there when I was in Europe and decided not to, ultimately went up at Apollo. But if I had gone back to work with Doug, it would have been an amazing experience. So he had a great impact because he really gave us the platform to build out what we did. And that was incredible time. The second one is really the first job I had out of college. So I'll give everyone a quick story. This might not come across in the right way, but I'm a senior in college. I'm interviewing for my first job. And back then you'd have your on-campus interviews. Then you'd go up to New York for interview if you were in the financial sector. So I had a friend who had been working at Bear Stearns in investment banking. And I went through the process on campus and I was invited for the final round at Bear Stearns in New York. And it was a Friday morning and I'm a senior in college. And I decided that I was going to stay Thursday night in Philly and go to an event and get up in the morning and take the train to New York, which I did. Ultimately, wind up at Bear Stearns for a day of interviews. And let's just say my performance was not very good. I don't know what kind of hangover I had, but it didn't work out too well. So I get back to Philly and the phone rings and it's a guy named Michael Cass. He was a second year analyst. He was running the process to hire new analysts coming in. And he basically said words that I can't say. And I said to myself, oh boy, here I am second semester senior. This is my chance. What am I doing? He basically said, listen, why don't we try this again? Why don't you come back to New York? We'll basically redo the day and let's see if we can make it work. He gave me a second chance. I came back to New York. I must have done something right because I was offered a job to go to Bear Stearns. Years and years later, Michael wound up moving to Westchester when I was living there. And I see him often throughout the New York world. And it just puts a smile on my face. I don't know where my career would have gone if I didn't start at Bear Stearns, but I did learn a lesson, which I've told my kids about going to interviews. What was the most challenging moment in your career? The most challenging moment in my career, I think, coincided with the most challenging moment in my life was when I was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2017. I mean, the experience itself, you know, I'm fortunate. It's been five years and I have a clean bill of health, but it was the unknown of, could I go back to the life I loved? I've never had a day where I woke up in any of the different jobs I've had that I didn't jump out of bed and really get excited about what I was doing. And I just worried that I'd never be able to do that again. I didn't worry about being sick for a long time. I just didn't know what was going to happen. And the fact that that's all behind me, all of these questions about raising money and building a new firm, they kind of seem pretty easy to solve versus what I went through. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Don't ever let anyone outwork you. I was an undersized, slow point guard in high school. And the hours that I used to work in the driveway trying to get better and obviously have lots of limitations, but it wasn't because I wasn't putting in all the work that I could. That's just what I've always been taught.
All right, David, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think it's that in the financial industry, it can be pretty intense. And to have a very strong emotional foundation is critical. And that that emotional foundation, at least for me, has always been part of my family. So having a family that can support you is critical. I was fortunate. I got married young. I had children young. So that support system has just been my rock. David, thanks so much for sharing your path and this exciting new venture. Thanks, Ted. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at to apply for one of the slots.